Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow becoming a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our worship service. We've been in the series uh, in 1 Corinthians, and I got to say, uh, it's been doing a lot of unique things in my heart. Being aware of things that I took for granted, perhaps. Remembering when Pastor David first preached on worldly and worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom and how it's not so clear. Oftentimes, there's a lot of syncretism in our hearts. Man, that did a lot of things in my heart. Checking what is in my heart and just really going under the lens of the gospel. But though it hurt initially, uh, it's so good for the soul. No one likes to, after being in the dark for so long, enter into the light, for it blinds us initially. But I got to say, that warmth, does it not feel good? To know the Father's love, to know that he sees us as we are, and yet loves us regardless. And then when Pastor John Yoon um, shared with us about division, following worldly leaders and even biblical leaders and our heroes of the faith. I got a funny story to tell you. It's a real story. It's not one of those pastor stories, I promise. I remember in Gordon-Conwell where I was studying and uh, Pastor Tim Keller came and there was a line to take a photo with him. I was so close. And then there was like these four sisters in front of me and they got, you know, to take a picture with him. And then all of a sudden, Pastor Tim Keller stands up and then he walks away. I was like, no, what about me? What about me? And so what I did was I, I took out my phone. It was so sad. As he's walking, I'm just like taking a you know, selfie of his back. 
Yeah, that happens. It happens to the best of us. And then also with uh, last week with uh, Pastor David talking about the hijacking of sexual immorality, of sexual ethics. It's ravaging us. And so although all of these things are just um, entering into our hearts, entering into our minds, one of the great things about this series is to know that there's still, there's, although there's a plethora of issues in the church and in my life and in your life, there's one solution, the gospel, the gospel, amen. When I was uh, younger, when I was like starting out 22, 21, and I was doing ministry, I, I, I wanted to make a dent in the world for Christ. And so I remember uh, being so programmatic, so event-driven. I wanted to know the latest trends in Christianity and to deliver to the congregation the latest and greatest, not knowing that the greatest had occurred 2,000 years ago. And today, in our passage, uh, we're going to see another issue. And it's more than just about food, oftentimes it usually is. But before I begin, I want to share another story with you or something a little bit about myself. Uh, I love to watch battles. Anybody? I love to watch battles of all sorts of uh, various kinds, whether it be action movies, uh, combat sports, debates, football. I-, I don't even like hockey, but the fact is there's a lot of battle in hockey, so I'll watch hockey. It's like figure skating, speed skating, fighting, <laughs> kind of like soccer. There's a lot going on, and I love to watch it. Not for reasons that you might think. It's not simply because I want to see a winner and a loser, although that there is some euphoric feelings to that too, but that's not the primary reason. But the primary reason for me is that uh, in these battles, there's a sacred kind of knowing. Let me give you an example. I hope this relates. Uh, Boxing or combat sports. Uh, Before the fight, There's all sorts of different uh, press conferences that they have to go to. It's grueling. I don't speak with experience. It just looks grueling, okay? Uh, But, um, you know, they trash talk constantly. I know how you fight. I know everything about you. I watched your videos. There's nothing that you can do to surprise me. You are done. In my mind, I've already won this fight. And lo and behold, on the day or the night of their fight, what oftentimes happens is none of what they were trash talking about. Instead, they're battling in there. And remember, they have said horrible things to each other. And yet after the fight, what you oftentimes see is that these two competitors will do what? They'll embrace. They'll embrace. They'll hug. They'll hug it out at the end, covered in blood and whatnot. Now that is kind of crazy. What are we doing? (laughs) What's going on in there? There's a sacred knowing in that arena. I tried to do a little bit of MMA, and um, I got punched in the face, and I was like, nah, I'm a pastor. But there's a sacred knowing in there. There's an experiential knowing. Before they knew only of each other's fighting style, but in the ring, what they understood about one another was their will to live their will to survive, the will to make it. They learned a little bit about themselves as well. 
Now, here's the thing. I know that I'm not the only one that loves combat or battles. I think a lot of people enjoy these things uh, because battles are a part of life. We're fighting a lot these days, aren't we not? At home, where we're stuck, COVID, politics, school systems, what are they teaching our children? We're concerned, we're worried, all sorts of battles. There's a battle right now. There's a battle right now. As I am preaching, there is a battle for souls, for faith, for the sanctification, the edification of this body. There is a battle. But more than this, as I've mentioned, for Christians, we know that the greatest battle occurred 2,000 years ago when Jesus conquered sin by dying upon the cross and defeating death once and for all in his resurrection from the dead. And this great battle is what we place all of our, in comparison, I'm not saying that it's nothing, in comparison to this great battle, we place our smaller battles in the foundation of this battle that was won by Jesus. How? We apply the gospel and the various elements of the gospel in all areas of our lives. And though as Christians we have this knowledge, oftentimes we don't fight the right way. Oftentimes we actually take this knowledge and instead of using this knowledge for one another and the edification of the body, we use this knowledge as a weapon. I know more than you. You know less than me. Oh, you poor thing. And we judge each other left, right. And in the church of Corinth, they love to fight in this way, as we have already seen if you have uh, tuned in. Not for one another, though, right? But against each other. And in our passage, some were saying in this particular battle, some were saying, food is food. Food is food. It doesn't matter. You're not uh, judged by what you put in your body. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was, you know, offered to idols. If I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And in Christ, I'm free. Jesus isn't going to love us more or he's not going to love us less just because of the food that we eat. Who cares? He doesn't even care. I'm going to just do whatever I want. It's not a big deal. But then there were other Christians who were saying, wait a minute, that is a big deal. You don't know what you're talking about. I know by experience what it feels like to eat food that was offered to the idols. You don't know what they do with that stuff. You don't know what it represents. I'm not going to put that in my body. I'm not going to put that in my mouth. This is not okay. And it is a big deal. And in our passage today, Paul, yes, on the surface level, he will address this issue of food offered to idols in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Here's what I love about Paul. He is much more wise and honestly much more fatherly. Uh, than we might even give him credit for. It doesn't just simply address the winners and the losers. He doesn't say, hey, over there, um, the Apollos group, hey, I'm sorry, but actually it was a Cephas group. They were right. You know, you guys follow the guy that can speak well. You should have followed Cephas, a.k.a. Apostle Peter. He's an apostle. You should have followed him. That group is right. I'm sorry, Apollos. You guys are charming and all, but uh, I'm sorry. You guys lost. He doesn't do that at all. What does he do? What does he do? We're going to see that today. 
And in verses 1 to 3, Paul gives his summary statement. He gives a summary statement about uh, what he is about to talk about. And he does it really brilliantly, too, because there's two other parts to this where he's like, all right, let me show you what it looks like to love one another. Let me show you how truth doesn't have to be used as a weapon. But before I begin and talk about that, let's talk about verses 1 to 3, Paul's summary statement. Starting in verses 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What is this knowledge that he's talking about? Because he's going to use the same word knowledge, but he's going to be referencing it to different things. In this particular sense of the word knowledge, he is referencing to food that was offered to idols. That's what he's just talking about. That's it in this text, in this point of the passage. And what he's referencing is, look, everybody knows about the food, okay? You're not special because you know stuff about the food, okay? But since this is not part of our culture, let me just explain a little bit about you know, food offered to idols. There were a lot of gods. There was a lot of temples in the city of Corinth, uh, a pantheon. Uh, and there were state-sanctioned and also private-sanctioned, celebrated festivals where there would be food offered to idols. And, and in particular years where, uh, you know, the sacrifice was really good, uh, there would be a plethora, a, a huge amount of food left over. And so what they would do is they would get into the temples, and within the same temple, there would be a market. And, uh, the, you, know, the, you know, the priests can't eat all of it. And so what they would do is get the remaining uh, meat and food and offer it and sell it to people. I mean, it was unavoidable. And you have to sympathize with these people. It was really unavoidable. It, it, let me put it in modern context. It was pretty much the restaurant of the day. You go out in Centerville, there's so many restaurants. You know, when I came to this church, I was 135. Now, it's your fault. <laughs> I'm like over 160. Ah, it's recorded. So I'm over that. So, you know, it's, it's just so many restaurants. It is unavoidable. But there was other things to that. They believed that when they ate of this food uh, and these festivals, and they would celebrate anything and everything, right? It was, it was just a party all the time. It was a lot of fun. They would be there, but they would also believe that the gods were present in the food. And so when you would eat the food, you're eating a little bit of the gods. And so these, you know, Christians who are just baby Christians, infant Christians who adopted this, they, that's all they knew for so long. They knew it instinctually at the core of their being. And so when they became a Christian and they were seeing all these Christians eating uh, the foods that they had left behind, they were stumbled. This is the knowledge that Paul is saying, hey, look, everybody knows this, okay? Everybody calm down, okay? Just remember, you know, for those of us who have been Christian 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? Do you guys remember what you guys were like when you were first Christian? How weird we were? I remember how weird I was. I remember when I was in the Bible study class, the Bible study teachers told me, she said to me, you know, this is what Jesus says. It's not just about, you know, murdering someone physically. If you have thoughts of murder, you have already killed them in your heart. If you hate your brother, you've already murdered him. But I had anger issues. So when I heard that, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, you know, I got to, you know, fix my heart, I fix my mind. I was like, oh, if I think about them in that way, I kill them too. Ah! I was so weird. <laughs> I was so weird. 
But, you know, older brothers and sisters came along and they helped me. I have a lot more embarrassing stories and I realize COVID is bringing out that weird side of me. But yeah, I mean, don't you remember? Christians, come on. Don't you remember what you were like? For the Corinthian church, they've been a Christian for just three to four years. You ever talk to a three to four-year-old? They don't make sense. This is not to be, like, condescending in any way. It's just, you know, it's just like, uh, that's why I love Planet Fitness. You go in there, and I feel okay. I feel safe. It says plaster on their walls, uh, 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 judgment-free zone. <laughs> it doesn't matter how heavy or how light your weight is. You just got to lift it, and it's better than nothing. But they've just been a Christian for three to four years, and their way of life was drastically disrupted by the gospel. I mean, listen to what it says, you know, a couple chapters prior, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, when the Corinthians accepted the gospel, their lives were not, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an inconvenience. It was radically disrupted. All sorts of ways. And here's a litmus test, ladies and gentlemen. Does the gospel disrupt your life? Does it disrupt your life? Or is it merely just, a, you know, something that's in the background, like white noise? Their old way of living had to die. That's not easy. That is not easy. These Christians adopted forms of syncretism where worldly and godly wisdom merged we witnessed some fruits of that where there's fleshly division, sexual immorality, and a kind that even pagans don't even do. So within the walls of the church, the reality is there's going to be a, a wide range of people with various different spiritual uh, maturities. I'm 34 years old. I am nobody's, in this room here, I am nobody's spiritual father. That is dangerous when you have a 34-year-old be the uh, spiritual father, okay? I'm like your brother, right? I still got it. <laughs> I, I'm still young, okay? I still got it. And uh, yeah, you know, we're walking together. We have elders here um, who are our spiritual fathers, right? And, and they, they protect us and serve us and lead us, and I love that. And ultimately, Paul is saying this knowledge doesn't do anything but puff up. And when you puff up, what happens is, is that you're just full of air. And you take up so much real estate in someone's emotional, mental, physical life, you know? You're just taking up so much space. You're making everybody move around you. And ultimately, what is the fruit of this? Well, later on, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And so what Paul is saying, this kind of knowledge ultimately leads to nothing, and not only that of no value, I become what I am pursuing, which is nothing. But the Bible is not saying knowledge is nothing, by the way. It's just that it's level one of 1,000. Because the highest hanging fruit is not knowledge, but love. 
we're going to see that. Because that's what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. Now, in my opinion, I think those two verses need to be understood together because it's kind of confusing, in my opinion. So in verses uh, 2, it says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He's not saying, hey, if you know something, you don't know something. He's not like contradicting himself. But what he is saying is, is that, you know, you want to be known by God. It's not just for the brainiacs. It's not all for the people who have it all put together. You know who it's for? It's for lovers. For lovers. It's for those who love Jesus. And notice how what Paul says. He doesn't say if anyone loves God, then he knows God. Like, because he's afraid. He understands how the Corinthians are thinking. When they think they know something, they think they control something. No, no, no. God is not a frog to be studied under a microscope. It's not like that. You don't read the word of God uh, to master the word of God. You read the word of God to be mastered by the word of God. Amen. And, and, and likewise, when we love God, to be known by God means that there is a relationship. There is intimacy. I wish I had known this a lot earlier, especially during my seminary years. Now, this is a really personal story for me because I still get nightmares about it. Um, I remember during my seminary years, um, I was very argumentative and just an overall angry guy. I had theological training also, and I used it as a weapon against a lot of good people. Anything and everything was a gospel issue for me back then. I knew categories, and I could systematically just, you know, hurt you. And I, I, I realized that during those years, uh, what was really sad is that I was able to convince some people that my knowledge of God reflected my walk with God. Spiritual abuse, I committed that. Spiritual authority, you know, abusing my authority and my position, I did that. Full of myself, I, was, I did that. I thought I knew everything. I, I did that. And I'm not, I, you know, the closer and closer that you get with the Lord, you know, uh, you're so f- set free from your past, but you also know what the past, <laughs> you can, you know, see the gravity of your past a lot clearer too. So there's a, this mixed thing. But I realize the truth of the Word of God where it says in James chapter 2, verses 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And what James is saying is this. You know who has the greatest uh, on this side of eternity, you know, theology that is better than the elders and the pastors? Demons, demons know God enough to the point where it viscerally affects them. They shudder. There's an emotional response. And so the question is, what is the difference between me and a demon? I'm not calling anybody here a demon. I'm asking myself this. What is the difference between me and a demon? Well, apart from God's grace, I don't know. It is impossible to escape such comparison. 
And therefore, because we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, in grace alone, by faith alone, it is so sad when I was puffing up my chest towards others, looking at them with eyes of contempt. Again, I'm not bashing knowledge. My children know who mommy and daddy are. They know. They know what I like, what I don't like. But I assure you, they're not my children because they know me. They're my children because they're my children. Nothing's going to change that. And in that love, they get a complete knowledge, a fuller knowledge of mommy and daddy. That's love. Love is not absent of knowledge. It just goes forward beyond just knowledge. Love goes to understanding. Don't you want to be understood? You know when you feel understood by somebody that you haven't been feeling that in a long time? Feels so good. Come on. You feel understood. When you don't feel understood, you feel abused and oppressed, right? But when you feel understood, man, that's love. But let me give you a more biblical, sophisticated definition of love. And again, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verses 4 to 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Love never ends. Amen. Isn't this what you want? It's what I need. I got to be honest with you. It's what I need. It's what you need. It's true that without knowledge, uh, there is no love, but without love, truth cannot be heard and therefore fully experienced as it ought to be. Such was the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The aim of their knowledge was knowledge. It wasn't understanding. It wasn't love. It wasn't a relational love. It wasn't a relational knowledge. And so that's the summary of what Paul is saying. Okay? But from here, he's going to demonstrate what truth and love looks like. And from verses 4 to 6, I mean, this is what Paul is saying. Okay? Look at this. This is amazing. Um, he says here, starting at verses 4 to 6, right? Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. And so you want knowledge, here it is. You're right. Food is food, drink is drink. We only believe in one God. Yes, that's true. That's true. 
So here is the knowledge packed for you, this rich theology that all things were created through and for Jesus Christ, that we are his and he is ours. This rich uh, doxology-like passage where we learn about who God is and how these idols have no existence, no power for the Christian. You're right, food is food. But here's where the love comes in, starting in verses 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Now, we're not talking about idols, you know, food offered to idols. We're talking about this truth, this uh, systematic theology, this rich uh, biblical theology. He's saying not everybody has that, guys. Not everybody has been churched all their lives. Not all possess this. But think about it, guys. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. They think, guys, that it actually affects them. They believe that they're eating part of a god. That's the life that they left behind. That is the reality of the church, that there are people that are not like you, and it's okay. And this is what he says, you know, continuing on. And this is the final nail. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do eat. And so it's like this. Paul is saying, for those of you with high and rich, almighty uh, theological understanding and training, you are no better than those who refrain from the food than those who do eat the food. Okay? There's only one thing that's going to get you the Father's praise. That's the blood of Jesus. Amen? Blood of Jesus. What Jesus has done. Not me, not you, not my past. Certainly not my past. I was one angry guy. Not me. But the blood of Jesus. And, you know, as a pastor, sometimes I get these kinds of questions. And it's like, can I drink alcohol? As a pastor, can I drink alcohol? Man, that is a question of knowledge. Let's go beyond love. The reason why I don't drink, like, like, like in any and all circumstances, is because you've got to be aware that there are issues within the church, that some do have issues. And for the sake of that brother, for the sake of that sister, for the sake of that non-believer... I will not stumble because their soul is worth far more to me. I don't care. That's the answer. I care about you. I care about the people in this room. I care about my friends. I care about my neighbors. I want a conversation. I don't just get to know you by answering yes or no. Do I drink? Do I not drink? I want to get to know you. And uh, let me just do a shameless plug here. That's where I think soon matters a lot. So please join our soon to do community life and ministry together. But this passage really does continue to get better. Starting at verse 10. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols... And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Should I drink alcohol or should I not drink alcohol? That does not tell me if I have committed sin against my brother and sister and Jesus, but if I have stumbled my brother and my sister, I have committed sin against the one whom has shed his blood for her, for him. We've missed the point, haven't we? For the sake of the body. And that's why, you know, I think the climax of this passage here is verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Wow. He's giving up his rights. And it's because he is imitating the one who gave up his rights, Jesus. Jesus didn't have to give up his rights. He did nothing wrong. He deserved the crown of glory, but he received a crown of thorns. He didn't have to do this. He could have said, I'm not, ugh, I'm not going to die for them. That's gross. Aren't you glad he didn't have that attitude? I'm glad. I'm so thankful. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Okay? Philippians chapter 2. This is what it says here, okay? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verses 2. We kind of sung about this, so I really pray that this is really in your hearts, okay? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind, okay? When you guys are doing this, don't do this just because you want to feel good or you think you're all that, but have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's my model. You can just imagine a church like that where we can lay down our rights just a little so that the world can see when they ask of you, why are you like this? You don't point it to yourself and get puffed up. You point it to Jesus, who though he had all knowledge, did not puff himself up, but emptied himself at the foot of the cross. I'm going to ask Pastor John Yoon uh, to come up. Um, and lead us into a response of uh, praise. I want this to be our prayer, church. How deep, how deep the Father's love for us. Because the problem, ultimately speaking, is not starting at a, ver a horizontal issue. My problems with you 
The reason why I was like that in seminary was not you. It wasn't other people around me. My vertical relationship with God was ruined because I was all about myself. I thought I had knowledge, but I did not have love. And so when we have that vertical, healthy relationship with God, not by me pursuing him and whatnot, but me understanding that it was God who continued to pursue me even when I was lost. But when I understood how deep the Father's love was for me, it changed everything about how I began to love ACPC, my wife, my children, my friends, my colleagues. I'm nowhere near where I should be. Your pastor is broken and fallen in so many ways. That's why I'm going to pray this song with you. How deep Father's love for us. Could we all rise and sing this song as an adoration and prayer to the Savior of our souls?